Satriyakal, Namaste, hello and welcome to the show called The Truth Tribe. I'm your host Ravi Thur and today we'll be discussing not-for-profits, community work, leadership, women power and what it means to be an immigrant in this beautiful country called Canada with a very special guest, Executive Director from Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba, Rita Chahal. Ma'am, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Namaste. Satyakal. Good afternoon here in, in Manitoba. And bonjour. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So for those who don't know Rita Chahal, uh, hold on to your seats because this impressive bio follows next. Rita Chahal currently serves as the Executive Director of the Mood Disorder Association of Manitoba, traveling from Northern India to Pier 21 on Canada's East Coast at the age of nine. Rita Chahal and her family were the second East Indian family to settle in Prince Edward Island during the mid-60s. Later, go on, she later went on to graduate from Dalhousie University with honors and eventually settled in Manitoba. Building her career in the prairies for over 42 years, Rita's work spans academia and corporate sectors. However, most prominently, she has served for the not-for-profit sector for over 25 years. As a champion of change, Rita has held key leadership roles serving as executive director for the Women in Media Foundation, Employment Projects of Winnipeg, and the Manitoba Interfaith Immigration Council. Her vision and leadership played a key role in leading the province through the settlement of refugees during the Syrian refugee crisis and the influx of U.S. claimants during the Trump administration. As the general manager of the Manitoba Chamber of Commerce, Rita was the first person and women of color to take on the role. Major cornerstones of her initiatives addressed labor skills shortage issues, foreign trade credential recognition, and HR services to address the impact of domestic violence in the workplace. Her community work includes serving on numerous local, provincial, and national committee and Crown Corporation boards as a chair or executive member. She has served on the Winnipeg United Way Poverty Council and is currently a member of the United Way Speakers Bureau. In 2021, the Nellie McClunk Foundation named Rita as the inaugural recipient of the Manitoba 150 Women Trailblazer Award. The award salutes the contribution that Manitoba women have made to social justice, arts, sports, politics, community activities, and promoting democracy. In 2022, Rita was awarded the Top 25 Immigrants of Canada Award, an award which recognizes immigrants across Canada who have made a meaningful impact across the country. More recently, Rita was awarded a recipient of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee Award. Super excited to have you here and to chat with you and to learn from you today. But to start us off, in your own words, who are you and what do you do? First of all, I pity you for having to read all that information. But thank you for your generous introduction. I really appreciate it. And it gives you a moment to think about some of the work that I have had the the privilege of working with many other people. I haven't done it alone. And so there, there's been many people in my life who have helped me support to, to be able to do some of the things that you identified. Who am I? First and foremost, I am a mother. And that is the most important part of my life. And now, of course, a grandmother of four. Um, so those two things, uh, relationships take priority over everything else. Besides that, I'm definitely uh, a loving daughter, a sister. Hopefully a loving wife and uh, and uh, an aunt and so on and so forth too. And all the beautiful relationships that I have in my life. And I'm also um, a community uh, advocate. And I, I do work closely with marginalized groups. And I've had the privilege and, and humbled by uh, some of the, the, the circumstances and the opportunities that I've had uh, to work with some of the Canada's people right across the country. That's a little, a little bit about who I am, but first and foremost, I'm a mom and a grandmother. That's wonderful. So there's a few different points where we can start off this conversation. I thought to start it off at your childhood. And what I want to ask you is, when you look back at your childhood, what is your most favorite moment that comes to your mind? Who are you with? What are you doing? And how has that shaped your worldview? That's a great question to start off with. My childhood, uh, of course, I, uh, as you said earlier, I, I arrived in Canada at the age of nine. Prior to that, perhaps some of the most precious moments in my life were, were in India before I left. And that was the close-knit relationship that I had with my Amma, which really was, who was my nanny. And I referred to her as Amma because everybody else in the family referred to her as Amma. She had, a, 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 I think, a very profound uh, impacting me just because she was a very strong woman, 
I, I didn't want to leave my Emma when I left India. And uh, I carried that with me for many years. I always wanted to go back to him because that's who I, I wanted to be with. But I think also um, the upbringing that I had in the early schooling years that I had in, in, in India that I have, have continued to play a, a role in who I am today. I was very blessed to be born in a family where I, that came from very humble beginnings. However, my dad was one of India's best-known athletes. He eventually went on to become one of the best in India's best. He and Milka Singh were friends, and they raced together. We have lots of stories in our family about Milka Singh and my dad racing together in many of the national tournaments. So my father was able to get a, a sports director position at a school called Bishop Cotton School in Shimla. It was a British school, and uh, that's where a lot of my early molding and, and introduction to uh, well, the schooling and especially to English uh, first happened. So a lot of uh, what the, how the school, um, and, you know, looked after the children, looked after the students. I was what was called a day scholar, and because I was the daughter of a staff person, so I was allowed to as a because it was an all boys school. It's called Bishop Cotton School. And there are several branches up in India, but it was an all boys school. But the daughters of the staff were allowed to go there till till what we in Canada would call grade six, but it was uh, upper two. And based on the British system, that's what. So that helped mold a lot of well, my early um, um, sort of uh, habits, my uh, my um, academic competitive nature in some ways, um, but also um, the humility that. We were taught in that school uh, the need for service and the need for um, having uh, spiritual guidance. Those are all things that, that were really that helped shape my 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 life and I'm able to carry those forward. I always do say I am what I am because of the upbringing that, that I had in those early years at Bishop Gordon School. I say that to my mom a lot. Uh, my dad passed away three years ago during COVID, but he yeah. But we last year were able to go to India and take to his final resting place. And he was, he was an incredible man. I learned so much from him. I thank him for bringing us to Canada and, and giving us the life that, you, that we have now. Uh, and the bravery with which uh, early uh, people who came to Canada in those 50s and 60s, to be so brave to take your whole family and move to a new place and start all over again. And so very, it, it, those are the role models that we've had to grow up in. And I've seen how uh, they put their, all of their energies in ensuring that their children had the best possible. Absolutely. Love that story there. So let's move on to your academic careers. What I found really interesting was your early years at the Dalhousie University. You were doing Bachelor of Science. What sparked your interest into science and how was that? In, how were those initial days? Why did I want to go into science? I'll tell you one thing, and I, I'm sure there's a few other your listeners who can identify with that. Back in the day, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, almost every East Indian family that came to Canada wanted their daughters and sons to be doctors. That was set for me, that you were going to be a doctor and you're going to follow a science path, which is what I did. It, I didn't quite make it to med school. I have to admit I was reasonably good at, at science, however, um, and Admitting this on on a national podcast, uh, um, I failed chemistry. I failed organic chemistry, and for a variety of reasons, so I won't go into that. Uh, but you cannot get into med school um, uh, uh, without organic chemistry. So I got a, a, a. I still did apply because that was what I was supposed to do, and so the the dean of Charles Tupper Medical School at Dalhousie University sent me a lovely letter and said. Obviously, I wasn't accepted, but I should look at other uh, uh, career options for myself. The science was great. I still have a, a, a good understanding of it. I still am, I did encourage all my children to um, follow that, that the route, and not that they did. Uh, but my life took a totally different turn, and here I am, 40-some years later, uh, in the not-for-profit sector, heading up a mental health organization. I yeah, absolutely. Seems like it worked in your favor. And that also makes the two of us because I love science, but chemistry is not my strong suit. I like physics <laughs> and I like biology, but chemistry was the reason I didn't pursue it. So love that in there. Um, 
Are there any habits that you formed in your university days that you still carry in your day-to-day? Any foundational habits that were formed in the university that has helped you in your career? Yes, I think there's a few things that have certainly learning how to time management was one big one. My mother always taught me, make your bed first thing in the morning. And I still to this day and do that. People don't realize that is an important part starting your day. If you have that part of your day organized, the rest of your room looks great. And so I feel that's disorganized. So that's one habit that I've continued. Um, the other thing that I, I think a little bit more related to what we're talking about is the need to to ensure that you surround yourself with people that can support you and that you can support support them so that there's some common ground. So there's some and I was very fortunate that I had an incredible group of friends at university and we still stay connected. And when I get the, when this is f- finished, I'm gonna send them out the link to this podcast. And we still stay connected, all of us. But you could go to any one of them if you needed some help. And we did that for, for each other. So I think that's something that I continue to carry with me that if I need help, I'm not afraid to ask for it. I'm, I'm not hesitant. Again, you have to weigh out what, what it is you're asking for. But, but, but overall, I think one should not be afraid to ask for help when you need it. Mm-hmm. They say vulnerability is your greatest strength. If you can show some vulnerability and, and I've had to and many times to do that. So next, what I wanted to check with you is your role as the general manager for the Manitoba Chamber of Commerce. You were the first women of color to be selected for that position. Being a woman in that position and then being a woman of color, what sort of responsibility was on your shoulders and how did you manage to deal with your workload? First of all, it was a great privilege, I thought, to be invited to, to take on that role. I was recommended for the role, so it's not what that I, that was the job that I applied for. The CEO of the Manitoba of the Chambers of Commerce connected with me and invited me to see if I would consider. Um, so that was an important um, confidence building builder for me to be invited. It was only later that I found out that I, that I was the first woman, I was the first woman of color, and the first woman who, uh, first individual actually in, at the chamber who had an arts and um, some kind of a crazy, not-for-profit, mixed-up background. So I always say kudos to, to the chamber, the matter of the chamber, for taking that huge leap of faith and believing in my ability to do the job. Because as many people will attest to this, is that the chamber over the years, it's, it's, it's definitely changed, but over the years has uh, traditionally been a very male-dominated environment, a very corporate environment, even though the, the chambers themselves are, the associations are not-for-profits, but, but the clients that they serve are very much corporate. That in itself was, was a huge leap for them to be able to do that. And so one of the questions actually during my conversation that I had with the CEO at the time who invited me to, to take on the role, he said, how do you, this is sounding funny a little bit, how do you deal with very aggressive, bold men who want, who demand, who are very demanding and they're, when asking the chamber for something. And I thought about it because often we would have to deal with a lot of men and I said, very diplomatically, and he loved that response. And anyway, it wasn't because of that response that I, I got the job. I believe I got it because of what I brought to the table. Moving forward on that, the, the file that I was given was to work with, with our chambers in rural Manitoba. And that gave me some really great insight into what the world, what rural Canada was really like, what rural Manitoba certainly was. And it also allowed me to connect with and find out where some of the skill shortages were in, in our province. And at that time, and just prior to that, I had also had the privilege of being on a ministerial advisory committee that had looked at credential recognition in foreign trained professionals. So that allowed me to really put that experience and that learning and some of the gaps that existed in, in, in the, the workplace, especially in rural to be able to connect employers with that, with that pool of qualified individuals that companies would help recruit. So there were some really great initiatives well, that we were working under. 
again, the CEO of the, the organization was very supportive of my work. I went on to nominate me to be on the national executive as well for the chamber, representing Manitoba, of course. And, but also it gave me an opportunity to work with employers to hear about some of the other challenges that employers were experiencing in everyday in, in, in their company. So one of the initiatives that I had I did work on was the impact of <clears throat> sorry, the impact of domestic violence in the workplace. How can it impact productivity, how can it performance, those kinds of things. So I was uh, um heading a, a, a committee um, that allowed us to work with the human resource professional the the, the human resources and managers and to really uh, um, it was a ministerial appointment and so work with the minister's office standards of women and the workplace doing a lot of work and, and really educating workplaces on how they could deal with some of the because violence against women is very real doesn't just happen behind a closed door it impacts your workplace it impacts your your, your children in fact they're 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 schooling it in fact there's a whole a domino effect of the impact of domestic violence. So we were able to really help uh, train some of those folks. And, and I know the work has continued at the chambers since I left. So I'm glad and that I was able to be uh, part of that inaugural piece of uh, educating our corporate sector on that. Just a quick question on that. If I have to ask you, I think you highlighted a couple of key points already, but on the economic uh, forefront, what are some of the challenges that Manitoba as a province face right now? I think Manitoba has actually been quite um, progressive in ways that they have dealt with some of their shortfalls in terms of uh, employment um, and filling the skill, that skill chart. We have had one of the, the best nominee programs. We actually, we were one of the first. Uh, and so I was quite involved uh, in, uh, in, in that process as well. And that's where my contributions into credential recognition came in. I think we're, like many others right now, uh, uh, certainly the economic things that are impacting our province are, are things like housing and just the, the, the lack of employees that can do the jobs that, that need to be done. So the skill shortage is still there. Uh, I think we should still, con- we we are continuing to look at the pool of uh, new uh, new arrivals in Canada from across the country, uh, as well as from um, overseas um, that, that can help fill those gaps. We're in the middle of an election, so I really can't talk too much about the election is in one week. So there's lots of uh, promises being made and things like that. But I think overall, Manitoba um, can come a long way, so certainly in some of the things that I've been involved with, but we still have a long way to go. Mental health still continues to be a huge concern for all, all of us across the country. I'm right in the middle and sick of it right now. I think that's where a lot of investments have to be made. I've been uh, Again, a privilege to be invited to the Minister's Advisory Council to provide input into how the provincial mental health strategies can, can be rolled out and how it needs to align with the communities. I'll certainly lend our voice, my voice as an individual, but also the voice of my sector and my organization and sister organization that I work with to ensure that Manitobans get the services that they need to help them in their mental health journey of hope and recovery. That's wonderful and, and quite interesting venture that uh, you have taken on. It's interesting you ma- mentioned the elections because I was doing a podcast interview yesterday and we were talking about the elections and my guest was actually waiting for the election results as well. So I'm sure all eyes are on that election uh, results yes. that come next week. Um, so let's switch gears and, and move on to what your current role is as the executive director of the Mood Disorder Association of Manitoba. If you have to break down this organization, some of the key objectives and initiatives you guys have, what would that look like? We've just finished a, a strategic plan. We've just implemented it. If you can think of, of a triangle in a person's life and to take it one step further and think about it, a triangle in a, a person who might be dealing with a mental health condition uh, or diagnosis, there are really three aspects to how they have how they can manage the diagnosis and once they can, they need to help themselves towards recovery. So the one, one of those triangles, one point of that triangle is definitely the professionals that they work with, whether it's the doctor, the therapist, the hospitals, the pharmacists, and all the professionals that help you take care of your diagnosis, whether it's making, prescribing a medication, 
going seeing a psychiatrist, all of those pieces. The second piece is the family that supports you to be able to manage a professional direction and professional support that you need. Making sure you get to your appointments, making sure you eat well, making sure you have a place to stay, and making sure you get your meds on time, those kinds of. So it's the family and the caregiver is very important. Without that, this part here wouldn't be able to do it. And then there's the third part, which is where organizations like Mood Disorders Association are part of that, that, that uh, mental health um, support system. So we are not, we're a non-clinical um, organization, so we provide peer support, which means essentially, without going into some uh, detailed definitions, basically it means that if you've lived, if you have lived or shared experience um, with a mental illness, um, then you can provide the peer, peer support to others. And so it's an interaction between two people in a confidential, safe environment so that people can, often what happens is people think, I'm not the only, am I the only one who's experiencing this? I got, and when you start getting peer support, you realize that others have had it too. And then something that they might have done or can help you navigate your journey. Just some, something you might hear or some, something you might share. You know what? I tried this and it worked for me. Or it might be a discussion about medications or uh, support. So that's the third piece. So that's the role that we are playing. Um, we are all across the province. So we have uh, uh, staff and, and offices uh, in various jurisdictions. Well, what role can we play? I think um, the fact that we uh, see this on the ground. People get, right now, there's a real shortage of uh, mental health uh, professionals. And we have uh, psychiatrists who are retiring or therapists who have decided to change uh, careers or things like that. Lo lots of things happen post-COVID. And there's a huge gap in the demand and the service in their news. When you can only go see your doctor, your psychiatrist, maybe every two months, we as an organization can help engage a weekly uh, meeting, weekly support. You can come to us and, and work with us to help you get through to the next one. Like from, on many things, there are long waiting lists. For example, disordered eating is one, uh, one area where that's huge, not just for women, but uh, for men as well. But the waiting list for treatment for those programs is huge. And we provide a program called disordered eating. Eating disorders is the diagnosis. But we don't deal with the eating disorder. We work with disordered eating, which is quite different than, than well, a clinical diagnosis. So we can help provide that somebody who's waiting three years can still go to a peer support group and help themselves. Again, we will never prescribe. We will never give uh, tell you exactly what clinical interventions you need. But we can provide that peer support. I think that the peer support can often be a very a strong tool and support system in, in your overall recovery and towards mental wellness. We always want to make sure that people stay in mental wellness as opposed to mental illness. We all have mental health, just like we have our physical health, but it's learning to manage the, that continuum from a mental illness to mental wellness, which is where we help you come in with giving you strategies. We do the weekly one-on-one -on -one, uh, peer support access to resources, whether to our website or our on site. We go to organize, we go to communities and we share information through education, provide information sessions. I do a lot of presentations, as do many of my staff, to employers and to those who in schools and things like that. So again, it's that whole education and advocacy piece and the actual frontline services that we provide. I, I, maybe a long answer to the question you asked, but I hope that helped. It it sure does. And and I'm thinking of a couple of quick questions just on that note. So my first question is, when you're talking about this peer-to-peer -peer support, the peer support that you are providing, is it a set group of folks do you have in there? Or could it be anybody I can be a part of your network and then... You can, any, anyone can uh, can join us if they need uh, peer support. They're on, and in some cases, certain certain things, there is a bit of a vetting process uh, because if you're, if you're going to Maybe the same number of people can you know, go through a six-week program or things like that. But generally, you can come as often or as little as you want. Although we're moving towards a, a more activity-based peer support model. So you're painting or you're uh, uh, doing part of a book club mm -hmm. or you're, we have a program called MADKID for, you, for young people between the ages of 12 to 17. It's open. Uh, it's uh, 
and a service that we provide free uh, during the summer for, for young people. The peer support, and of course, we a lot of our, our services are delivered through our volunteer base. We have a very strong volunteer base who also have sometimes been a client initially, and then like me, they're they were able to, they're able to then provide a peer support to others because they've gone through the process themselves. But yes, um, uh, you could join us if, uh, or if you know of any loved ones. And I know that from time to time we have taken people out of the province as well because now everything is virtual, right? You can log in from anywhere. But mm-hmm. much, I would say majority of our, our clients are from Manitoba and from and if services are being delivered in our Westman or region, for example, Brandon. Most of the clients that will be joining those groups virtually or in person will be from that region. Very interesting and very cool initiative because I've had a chance to speak with a couple other mental health professionals during this podcast. And some of the challenges are exactly what you laid out there is not having enough professionals and not getting that support within that time frame. And, and you have that big delay. So I think this model really comes in and fills in that gap. Actually, I have to say that when COVID, everyone, no one was seeing people in person. So that this played a havoc, a huge havoc on uh, people's lives. They had nowhere to go. So like other organizations, I've been with the organization now for about three years. We, like others, had to, what the buzzword at the time was pivot. So we had to pivot to uh, virtual delivery. And But not everyone had access to the tools to, to go online. Not everyone has a smartphone or a computer or and. Of course, in rural regions, rural Manitoba, the infrastructure isn't necessary as the best. So there's, there was that issue to deal with. So now that we provide a hybrid uh, model, uh, we have to make sure that people, not everyone was then comfortable to come back to in-person. That's, we lost a lot of people. I, I, I think it, 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 there was a, a huge concern on our part that people who were very marginalized to begin with and were dealing with mental health issues were now marginalized even further because they had no access to technology that was being implemented. The only silver, the one silver, I guess there were perhaps others, but the ones that I tend to refer most to silver lining or the pandemic was that the conversations about mental health, about mental illness, about mental wellness have become uh, more commonplace. Uh, mental health is still very much a stigmatized uh, topic but it's less so than it used to be. And especially in the ethnocultural communities, it's still very destigmatized. It's something that we still don't want to talk about. And so as, a, as an organization, we're working towards trying to get that, that message out that it's okay to ask for help. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, you're not any less than anyone else if you, if you ask for help and support. 100%. And I think that's some wonderful work and a lot of people can use that help. So kudos to you and the team uh, for stepping in there and, and doing your work. Um, if I have to ask you, just on that note, if you have the authority to make three changes in how the mental health services are delivered or how it is set up today, what would those three changes be and why? Great question. I hope the politicians hear me on this response. I would certainly say that if I was in a position to make those changes, I would invest in in training professionals. I think that's where one of the things that, that is lacking. So some um, organizations, especially like the brothers, don't necessarily always have uh, the means, the financial means. They might have the will and they might even have the people, but they don't have the means to be able to invest in, in good training, long-lasting training. Because often what happens is they invest in the training, but then the, the individual leaves because they get, they're now trained and have to get a better job. So the second point that would be atta- attached to, to the training piece would to ensure that people are compensated a pay. I think that in, in this sector, and in particular the not-for-profit sector, there needs to be a real hard look at how people are compensated. Our work is not any less important than our counterparts in the public or the corporate sector. So I think that's a conversation that has started, but it needs to continue at the, and it needs to be addressed in a more constructive, more, and more strategically and, and with, with some assurity that, that the, our legislative decision makers are listening. So I think that's where I would invest. And the third thing I think is in this, in the mental health sector, 
is to really to educate people that mental health is not something to be afraid of. The individual is in a very vulnerable stage. They need love and care and compassion more than anything and support to get them through their, their um, journey of hope and recovery. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. My follow-up question on that, just what you said is, can you share an instance where you or your organization has helped a particular individual with whatever it was that they were struggling with? Sort of what was the situation? How did you guys help them? What was the outcome? We help people every day. And I have to be very careful when I respond to that question because we absolutely adhere to confidentiality. Anyone who comes to yeah. our, but there are times when we have had to talk somebody out of harming themselves. Well, where they might be on the verge of giving up. We are, all of us are trained and, and, and suicide prevention, what call assist. So that has happened many times. It happens often enough that we, then we hear from the individual and says, if somebody hasn't answered that phone, I might not be here today. If some, if you hadn't, if so-and-so referring to an individual thing, Jane hadn't answered the phone and Jane, if you hadn't talked, and I'm just using Jane as an example, you hadn't answered the phone. I might have just walked off and done what I was thinking of. So that's a one that we absolutely deal with. We have staff who end up going in a, to the emergency hospital, hospital emergency room, holding someone's hand because they don't have a family member that they can pull and they might be, might have harmed themselves with a drug overdose or with other, some other unfortunate incident. I can tell you, I can share my personal experience with you. How Please, I help if you're my, comfortable. Yeah, I'm comfortable in sharing that. How I help myself and how mood disorders help me. At the onset, this is taking some level of courage to do this at a national level. Uh, but I, I do share my story with others when I, uh, I'm invited as a speaker to, to different things and presentations that I make. Three years when the pandemic started, I, like many other Canadians, lost my job. It's a high-profile job, the senior leadership role. And we won't get into why or what happened and things like that because employers have to make certain decisions. But I'll talk about the impact that it had on me. So when it happened, I thought, oh my goodness. And I was at age 63. Now you can figure out how old I am. At age 63, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And I just... I was like the floor just, yeah. I thought, give me a key. That's position thing. I said, I'll never be able to get back up again. I went home <clears throat> and my family obviously supported. But I crawled into bed and I thought, I'm never going to get out. I'm just going to go away. Let me wither away and I'm never going to get out. But I, did, I was lucky that I had a family member, sorry, mother, sister, we had a solid support Gita. And for about six weeks, but pity on myself and Mickey Karanki. And I had a, a good friend in Halifax, my, one of my university friends, and she called me and she said, Rita, the pity party is over. Get over it. And I thought, okay, that's what I have to do. And so I realized, and what had happened actually, if I can give you an image of uh, what I experienced Please. at the time. As in Manitoba, we get a lot of tornadoes and warning things or cyclones. And if you have vision that there's a big opening at the beginning, at the top, and then it's the funnel goes down, right? And so what I felt like is I was being sucked into this funnel and I was going to drown and I'm never going to get out of this and, and I don't even want to get out of it. But all I kept doing was I kept looking at Again, the visual that I can share with you, and I kept looking at this light that was at the top of this tunnel. And all I, I wanted to do was just hold on to that light and just keep me from actually, even though I might say I want to drown, but I really didn't want to drown. I somehow found the strength to build a support system for myself. And I was selective in my support system. I really thought if I who I needed to have. Like, about five or six really strong people that I kept around me. Obviously, my family aside, 
my mother and sister were a big part of my support system and the rest of my family, but I, I made sure I stayed connected to some of former colleagues, to some other new people, some other, I, I selected these, these people and I, and I had conversations with them and I said, you need to check in on me every day or every other day. If you don't hear from me, it's time to, to figure out what, where I might be. And again, it wasn't just about doom and gloom that I had just to check with them, but they, they checked in on me. They made sure I was okay, made sure I was eating, made sure all, you know, all of the things that needed to be. But it also, what I did for myself was I said, okay, I, I have so much to give to people still. I'm not, a, I'm not done yet. I made a routine for myself. I made sure I got up and I got ready for as if I was going to work. I would spend three hours in the morning and I would sit at my desk. My husband uh, got me all set up with a computer on a work, workstation and I would do job searches or whatever research I had to do. I made sure I uh, took breaks in between. So at 10 o'clock or 10.30, I would go listen to the prime minister give his daily briefing on the COVID. I made sure I tried to eat reasonably healthy. Even if I didn't eat a lot, I had to work at making, trying to get myself to so I made lunch or whatever. And then I also, in that, because we couldn't go anywhere, we were all stuck at home. I also wanted to do something for myself that not just work, but not just, you know, be out on this hamster wheel looking for a job. I just, I would watch Hallmark movies. This was my way of de decompressing. I think I've watched every Hallmark movie, many of them made in Manitoba during this period. But they always they were very predictable, always had a happy ending. You got to see some nice things. That, and I, I tried to go for walks. I tried to hey, learn how to exercise. I have a long way to do the exercise, but I haven't got, got right there, but uh, I certainly tried. But I try to make sure that I built that support system up for myself. Uh, but I also uh, knew that I, because I needed, I needed to work. So instead of looking for work, I created my own work. I created my own company called Foster Management. And I started to do some pro bono work for some not-for-profit organizations in our area that have for the year supported me. And so I started to open my own company uh, and started networking through that. And it was through that networking that I got the job at Mood Disorders. I got a small contract, actually. And so I said, okay, I'll give it my best. It was like a 15 hour a week contract. And eventually uh, within about three months, it turned into a full-time position. Mood disorders helped me get back on my feet. It saved me from drowning when I, as well as them, I have to be grateful to all of the people that were in my support system, especially the women that were in my support system were really great and looked after me. So here I am now in a position to help other. Other, women, other people, other women. One of the things that I found when I was found myself drowning was that there weren't a lot of support systems. In fact, there were none for women who had been in senior leadership roles. Because often when you are in senior leadership roles, you're expected to have be the strength you're supposed to carry on. You might there, and of course, it can be a very lonely place because you don't always have, you'll have to take the charge and the lead. So you don't have necessarily someone else to turn to, and you can't be vulnerable. You can't cry. You can't show your, you're making a decision, but you're really scared inside. Am I making the right second guessing yourself? So when all this happened to me, I, there were no support systems in place. So one of the things that I've done was since coming on to disorders, I've started a, a project that, that I worked on called the Women's Speaker Series. Uh, where we invite women, and uh, a lot of them are women in senior roles who have gone through uh, their own journeys and are willing to talk about it. It's become a very successful project that we're working on. That's something I'm very proud of that we're doing here. Yeah. We've had people like Chantal Kraviasek share her story on our speakers. We've had CEOs, we've had, but also ordinary, uh, everyday women who are moms, who are homemakers who are working and struggling with many things, but now are able to give hope to others. So our women's speaker series is something that I'm quite proud of. We have a great women's program here, by the way, if anyone's interested. That's lovely. And I thank you for sharing that, that story of yours. 
And that's part of why that's one of the main goals of this podcast is a lot of times you see the person outside and you see the strong force, but a lot of times it's all these stories in the background that have made you the person you are. So I absolutely love that. I love the fact that you have such a good support system in your friends who were there for you to just lend a year. And I don't miss those 1030 calls from Prime Minister Trudeau at all <laughs> during those COVID hours. Uh, so a lot of good stuff. My question is, what would be your message to somebody else who's struggling with something like this? Since you've gone through this, what would you tell them? First and foremost, you're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. One in three Canadians will experience some kind of a mental health challenge before the age of 40. Mm -hmm. And those are pretty alarming statistics. And again, I you know, unfortunately didn't bring a lot of stats with me uh, to, to share with you, but I, I can send you those if you want to put up as part of your, your um, transcript later on. Uh, but the, I would tell people that don't be afraid to ask for help. It's not, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, in fact, it is your greatest strength when you can show your vulnerability and say, I need help. If, if you and I had a, you know, a broken ankle or on, on a heart condition or we were diagnosed with, with something that uh, we weren't expecting, would we not go to the doctor? Would we not ask for help? We would ask our friends. We would tell our friends. Uh, to some degree, we would share that with, with others. So if you're experiencing anything, that's the first step you can do is to ask for help. And there are good resources out there. Maybe we need more, but there are, and you can, there's people who can help navigate that process for you. One, 100%. And I usually bring stats on my program here and sh I love to share stats. I don't have any in front of me either, but I validate <laughs> what you just said about the mental health problem. One in three, less than 40 years old. I know the suicides in Canada, the suicide rate is really high. It's about 4,000 suicides a year, every year for the last few years, right? Um, these are some real concerns and, and I appreciate you just uh, talking openly about these. Just to flip the switch on it and, and talk about some high moments and proud moments, what would you categorize as your most proud moment in your career so far? And what did that teach you? But you are asking about career, certainly been lots of really high points in my both personal and professional life, but referring back to uh, my professional life, one of the, I can summarize the highlights in, in a way was when we did have people coming to our country that we had to open our hearts and our homes to during the Syrian refugee crisis initiative that Canada led was certainly one of those highlights where I was very much at the kind of leadership role being able to provide that. But I think equally important with that one was, and this was very much a political issue, so I, I won't get into the politics of the circumstances, but when south of the border, we had the president of the U.S. make some changes to their immigration policies and people came across, across borders at Manitoba. But people were traveling at night in minus 40 temperatures with children and backpacks and for hours ahead. And the world attention was on Manitoba. And I had to put on a, a hat that could, and then sometimes did become very politically volatile. I could not. And again, because I, I worked for not the profit, we had to worry about funding and things like that. And of course, the political messaging that the country was to, had to deal with. I had to put on a very caring and compassionate hat. And I had to say that out loud and say, I'm not going to talk about the politics of any country or the decisions of, of any particular leader. What we're doing and the way we're supporting those who are coming to our province is, was really just on a humanitarian basis. We were not seeing numbers. We were seeing the faces of the people who came in. We were seeing the faces of the children. We needed to make sure that nobody lost their lives in these crossings at midnight and at minus 40. We needed to make sure that they had shelter and food and then allowed themselves to just think and take the next steps. So I took some really strong decisions at the time, not necessarily the most popular decisions at the time, very, as I said, very politically, and I won't get into the politics, 
but the world was on your, we were on the Wall Street, so the world media descended on, on in Winnipeg. I had to handle it. There were times when there would be five or six broadcasters waiting in our lobby wanting to interview me about the situation. And um, I became quite good at it, actually, to be able to keep the politics out of it and really put a, a very human face to what was happening. And I remember being on one of the radio, NPR in the U.S. invited me to do a interview and asked me lots of questions. And one of the questions that, but my response to the question, I don't even remember the question, but my response to the question was that we really need to treat people with dignity and respect, which was an underlying thing that didn't even, that's not something I had to think about. And just that phrase that's saying we need to treat dignity and respect, if we use treat people with dignity and respect became so powerful that the next day I was flooded with requests from the U.S., from South America, from Europe, asking me to talk about that, that need for, they said, no one talks about that anymore, about treating people with dignity and respect. And I thought, that should be a, that should be a basic human right. And managing that media was a big highlight in my life when I was on CNN and every broadcaster in the U.S. and every Canadian broadcaster. European, um, I just, even India, now the, the broadcast reached India and I would get phone calls from India, people asking me if I can help them come to India. And I said, please stay where you are. I do not advise you to go crossing at minus 40 and just, but can they, can they land or sort of person who can they download? That's what people were thinking. Honestly, it was because the name recognition, last name Chahal, people saw it in the papers or they saw it on, on television or whatever. And I you get so my, my assistant at the time, she started then to screen the calls because she, you know, anyone recalling that she would put them through. Uh, but yeah, that was the kind of impact. So I, that was a proud moment for me in the, in the sense that I, I really took my personal values and, uh, was able to uh, not politicize it, uh, but really treated people with dignity and respect. And that's something that has always been part of who I am. And um, I, but that was a message that I gave to that's lovely and what a beautiful story. And I don't think we do that enough these days is treating everybody with dignity and respect. We are still fortunate that we live in a country like Canada. There's other countries that it's a far off path for some of those folks. So absolutely love that. And again, kudos to you for doing such great work. I didn't do it alone. There was some, I had an incredible team that I worked with, people who were driving back and forth, people who, and the generosity of Manitoban that came through at that time was something to behold. People were so generous with their with offers of health and financially and food and all sorts of things. But with the generosity of the people, that's, that's really moved me so much. That's lovely. Shout out to all the Manitobans who absolutely, did participate absolutely. in it. So question on that, how do you, because you're so involved in the not-for-profit sector and there's so many initiatives you have worked on, how do you decide what societal issues to advocate for? Do you have a framework or how you go about making that decision as to what needs attention and what does not? There's a lot of things that need attention in, in, in everyday life. It is a, sometimes a difficult decision. Sometimes even within an organization, you have to prioritize what are your organizational priorities and where do you focus. We all have limited budgets and, and so we have to. Being in the not-for-profit, I have certainly worked with a lot of boards overall. And so I've learned. I've been on both sides of the table. I've been a board member. And in a leadership role as a board chair, I've also been in the role of the executive director with answering to a board. What I've learned and the way I handle it is that ultimately in the not-for-profit world, when you are board-led, it is the board who is your ultimate decision-maker. You report that the board is responsible. Sometimes you agree to disagree with, a, with, a, with, your, with your board, but because you're reporting to them, you have to fulfill what yeah. uh, the their directive is. I've been very privileged to have worked with boards that have been given me a lot of autonomy. 
for example, that the board that uh, I worked with when I made those, some of those difficult decisions when people were coming across the board. And uh, uh, as I said, I've been very privileged to have had that. Um, uh, thanks the boards to have what, uh, trusted me to do, make those right decisions. But there are times when we disagreed. How do I, as a person, my, my life has led me to always work with vulnerable populations. And so that always becomes um, an automatic way of, whether it's working with women or with indigenous communities or whether it's youth or whether it's now people with dealing with mental health, uh, just my work has led me to work with vulnerable populations. Let's go back in time and talk about your initial upbringing. There is a beautiful Canada connection that you have even before you came to Canada. I want to just hear that from you. What was okay. it growing up in India and then how were your initial days coming into Canada? My, my Canadian connection started long before I came to Canada. In fact, it started when I was born at Maple Leaf Hospital in northern India, a small place called Congra, which is close to Tom Salaware, where the Jalai Lama lives. It's about 30, 20 kilometers from there. I was born in Maple Leaf Hospital. I was delivered by a Canadian doctor, Dr. Haslam, in southern Ontario, who was a missionary there. Uh, and, and my parents were married by a Canadian missionary, originally from Newfoundland, Dr. Dunstan. And he was, in fact, ended up being the, the headmaster of the school that I eventually went to in, in Shimla, Dr. Dunstan. And that was very much a, my earliest Canadian connection. As I told you, my parents came from humble beginnings. But my, my dad did achieve a lot of academic and success in his life. And, and he went on to being one of India's uh, top athletes, Olympic uh, caliber athlete. And, but the story that why he came to Canada is quite uh, unique. I don't know if we have time to, to share that, but I'll try to summarize it. That there was a missionary who knew my father and was coming to Canada to, when she was leaving. But when my father, as I told you, had humble beginnings, he had been adopted by a woman in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, came from a, a family that supported children all around the world. And she had seen a picture of my father in a church magazine. And she had had no children of her own, was widowed. Elaine Champion was her name. And so she would support children's education these children all around the world but her only criterion was that the children would never find out who supported them to their school so the story was written about my dad about his athletic abilities and uh, how that he was a very talented but didn't necessarily have the means to to be able to go on to higher education and to an athletic career so she she chose him and so she connected with with her with the, missionaries in India and sponsored my father and he never knew what happened and he just continued to go to school and one thing after another and he was very successful in his academic and his sports career, ran races with the likes of Milka Segu and he were very good friends. It was Milka, Mushtaq and Matkan. There were three of them that used to race together all the time. And one day when this missionary came to, to, to Prince Albert Island, she was sitting in, in Elaine Champion's uh, living room. And Elaine Champion asked her, she said, many years ago, I had supported a young man by such and such name, by the name Mushtaq Mathik. And, but for a while I was getting information about him, but I don't know what happened, what happened to him. And, and her guest just about fell off her chair apparently and said, my last meal in India, was at his home. And uh, she went on <laughs> and told uh, my success of my life. And, and if she had, in fact, had her last uh, meal in India um, at my parents' home uh, in Shimla, but she had come to the school. Um, thanks. Granny Champion, we lovingly called her Granny Champion. That's where she became to us. She was long gone now. Decided to break her silence and wrote to the headmaster of the school, who had made all these arrangements for my dad that uh, I need to connect with him. And so she wrote a letter to my father. Actually, no, she, did, she wrote a letter to my father, not to the headmaster. Excuse me. 
explaining what had happened. And my father, he read, read this letter. I, I still remember when in this letter came, he was about eight, nine years old. And he took the letter to uh, Dr. Dustin and he said, what is this? Can you explain this to me? And Dr. Dustin said, yes, this is true. This is the woman who helped support you in your days at school and through university and And so my father made a vow that he was going to take it. We obviously connected with the European champion, went back, went back and forth, and he made it his mission to come and meet this woman who had done so much for his life to get him to where he was. And so in 1966, December 1966, we landed in Prince Edward Island and, um, Actually, we landed in, at uh, Pier, uh, Pier 21 in, in uh, Halifax just a few days before Christmas and uh, went on to uh, for celebrate Christmas with uh, Granny Champion. It was history after that. My father was very fortunate. He was well-educated, teacher, and so he had uh, several job offers. And so he was able to get work and one of the highest paid um, you know, the teachers in Prince Edward Island at the time, both kinds of things don't happen now, but back then uh, it did. Uh, he also went on to uh, receive the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame for bringing, uh, wow. introducing boxing. The boxing in Prince Edward Island, he introduced field hockey to Prince Edward Island, and he was very involved in the initial setup of the Canadian Games, the Canada Games. I, he, and, but from what I learned from my father was the importance of giving back to community and both him and my mother, they worked really hard uh, to give us a good life and, uh, um, but also supported us to, to do what we wanted to in the end, do what they did, where I ended up in not-for-profit instead of being a doctor. Story. And last year, yeah, last year we took our dad home. He had passed away in 2020 due to COVID. But we couldn't take him to his final resting place because of travel restrictions. So we, had, we made arrangements with the church and we were able to put him in his final resting place next to the school. Literally, like the school that he went to was really close to the church that we belonged to. And so we were, and one of the earliest principals of that school, and he are very close to each other. Life really did come full circle for my dad. And that's. that's... He helped That's us incredible. get where we are today. He would be so proud and happy that I'm able to share that story with the Western country. I'm glad you shared that story because that's such an incredible story. And, and it's his hard work and his dedication that is now reflecting in everything that you are doing, right? It's like a snowball effect. You do good yeah. and then the good passes yeah, on through generations. Yeah. My parents answered in those very early stages. It's also about 12 families, a very similar manner that Granny Champions sponsored us and we sponsored others. And then those families have gone on to sponsor others. So now there's a whole community that settled in Canada, U.S., England from those early sponsorships that my mother and father made. And he would pay their, for their fare, but he would pay him back, obviously. But yeah, there was a lot of, lot of support. And he was his own little settlement agency, helping people get settled when they first arrived in Prince Edward Island or in Nova Scotia or any Brunswick. Many of them settled in the East well, My next question to you is along the same line. So having all the experience you have gained so far and learning so much, doing so much, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self and why? Actually, I was pretty bold when I was a 20-year-old. I was a bit of a rebel in many ways. Well, I would give myself advices to to continue honoring your heritage, to continue honoring where you came from. I'm, I've always been very close to my background. But what I've done with it is that I've really, uh, working with the next generation, it's really helped recognize the importance of a bicultural heritage. That you really need to, Canada is home now. This is where I live. This is where I was raised. This is where I went to school. This is the country that has given me so much. And now my children have an opportunity to, uh, to give back as well. So I tell people, if I can share with going back to my 20-year-old, 20 so, is really be proud of that bicultural heritage. And I think I did do that, and I would give myself that same advice again. Uh, but I also give it to others. Uh, don't forget where you came from. Be grounded in who you are and where you're at and prepare for where you need to be. That's a great advice. And I'm sure we all can learn from it and take it to heart mm -hmm. and 
implemented in our lives. When you're not working or when you're not busy, how do you refresh yourself or stay mentally fit? What are some things that you do aside from work that keeps you on your A-game? I don't exercise enough. That's something I need to do. I do listen to music and I love dancing. I, when I ever, um, sometimes I dance a lot when I go to parties and, and socialize. But I, I, I watch, I try to do something mindless. Uh, like I watch Indian serials from at the time that I follow it. But I also try to learn from some of those things too. Like even the Hallmark movies or even some of the, the, the current serials that I'm watching, I try to see if there's something that I can apply to myself. It, may, it might be just a, a poem or a, a saying. I try to, to see if I can get some value. But yeah, I'm getting to the stage where I really need to. I am slowing down a bit. I'm not, not all on the hamster wheel all the time. So I'm trying to learn to be a bit more relaxed. Um, taking, I try to spend more time talking to my grandchildren more than my children. Uh, they are the, the love of my life. And just as often as I can go visit them, I, I try to do that. So having conversations with them is important. My next question is around the books. I find books add a lot of value to one's, one's life. Reading does. Um, if I have to ask you, what is your most favorite book or a book that you would recommend everyone reading? What would that be? It's an old classic. I, am, I love Weathering Heights. Oh, I just said it's one of my books that I had to read in the university. It still remains. Uh, uh, one of my favorites, uh, and just um, I think. And, and who is that by? Weathering Heights. It's Emily Bronte, Weathering Heights. Okay. Uh, and a couple of books that my dad always wanted: Power of Positive Thinking. So it's another one that I've read that sends me back in my life from time to time when I feel the need for some spiritual guidance. I I do read the Bible. <laughs> So that's important. That's an important book. That's always on my uh, my bedside. But yeah, I, I don't read as much as, as I'd like to, but uh, certainly more recently I've started to read more books on mental health. We have a book club here and shot disorders. So some of the books I've, I have started to read a few of them, but I'll get through them slowly. Some of the ones that are being read in our book club. Perfect. Thanks for sharing the ones that you like. If you could put anything on a billboard for the entire Manitoba, or let's say the entire Canada to see, what would that message be and why? I, I guess when I've said earlier that your vulnerability is your, is your greatest strength, it's uh, show up and show your vulnerability and that's your that's courage. That's perfect. Amen to that. If I have to ask you, what does the future hold for you? What do you have in the works over the next couple of years? What does that look like? Well, certainly I've already given you some hints as to the fact that I'm nearing retirement, but not quite ready for it. I will continue to work my, my business of cluster management to continue because that's something I can control a little bit better. And people are asking me to provide that to support to that. I hope I can, I do get invited to, to speak and hope I can continue to do that. I have been working on a book called Himalayas to, from Himalayas to Halifax and Beyond. I've written the first five chapters. I have to finish at least the next few and, and, and uh, get someone to publish it. It's um, a, story, a book I started to work on when I was taking a course. Um, and uh, just uh, really thing the world when I can and and. But, my grandchildren is what uh, what I look most looking forward to is spending time with them and reliving some of the, the joys of going to watching children grow and to the beautiful people that they turn on. I'm very blessed with kids, three beautiful kids who have done well for themselves and are now passing it forward. That's excellent. I look forward to when that book is finished because I would be the first one to get that. It's been lovely talking to you and just learning from you and learning how your journey has been. And, and I'm hoping that anyone who is listening will be able to take some actionable bits into it and then implement into their own lives to make for a better life for themselves. Before I let you go, though, what would be your message to anyone who's listening, especially like the South Asian community, the immigrants coming to this country? We have more of them coming than ever before. Being an immigrant yourself, what is your message to them uh, as to how to take this journey and, and what to expect? 
I think that you know, it's a, I love Canada. We're so grateful that we have the opportunities that we have here. Uh, and so not to take that for granted, um, but to really approach things. What can I give back if I'm also taking? So that's something I like to think about all the time. We all, most of us um, in general in life, we want to take, but we also need to give back as well. And again, something I said earlier, don't forget where you came from. Be grounded in who you are and know where you are and plan for the future where you want to be. And don't be afraid to ask for help. There is help out there if you need it. And those are the things that I think message that I could give to others. That's awesome. Once again, it was lovely chatting with you just to learn from you. Thank you once again for your time. Lovely to talk with you. My pleasure. I hope we talk again. And I want to say thank you to you and to your listeners for this invitation. Mm-hmm.